Well, please, your Bibles, and let's turn together to Isaiah 41. Uh, we're turning to Isaiah 41 today. I'm just going to read from the verse number 20. Again, really breaking into this section, really goes back to chapter 40 and the comfort of God to his people in terms of their captivity, but the expected return and God's grace to his people following their captivity. Uh, And then part of God's purpose in all this is announced in verse number 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are here to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. And of course, the context there in those latter verses is the, the exposition or the exposure of these idols as being false gods in their contrast to the true and living God. And we'll look at those verses in just a couple of moments. Again, our subject matter for this morning is to continue in the subject of the knowledge of our God, or should I say, God's knowledge of himself and of all things. And God is that single, supreme, infinite spirit and has the faculties of mind, will, and affections. And those are faculties of personality. And God, as a supreme personality, has these faculties, one of which is the faculty of mind, understanding. And, of course, from that we get the concept of God's knowledge. And God's knowledge is a perfect knowledge, an innate knowledge, a constant knowledge. It doesn't change, not fluctuant. And that knowledge he has is perfect regarding himself and also of all things. And last time we were together, uh, we looked at the fact that God's knowledge of all things includes things that will not be. I mean, consider the fact that God knows all the potential possibilities in the affairs of men. He's able to look ahead and to discern, or did look ahead and did discern, if you like, in anthropomorphic language. He, he saw all that could be and made every decision, every determination with wisdom and knowledge. And so we saw that last time, looking back over that material as, as comforting and encouraging as it is. But the next thing we see regarding God's knowledge of all things is that God knows things that were. Again, we've got to be so careful in, in our concepts here. When we think, well, I'll ask you, what terms do we use if we were to think about our knowledge of things that were, of things that are past? What sort of word would we use for that? Yeah. Remembrance, yeah, or memory. So we consider things that are past, and we're talking about memories. With, with the Lord God, you, you've got to be very careful in that language. Again, this is another illustration of the fact that God is not governed by time, as we are governed by time. God knows all things, and we said last time, God knows all things constantly. God's knowledge does not change. There's not an advance of God's knowledge, no diminishing of God's knowledge, and therefore God simply knows. 
past, present, future, he knows. And so to speak of God in terms of remembering or memory has to be done with caution and particularly with the emphasis that God himself reveals these things for us. That he is a God who remembers. And the sense of that is he is a God who has a perfect knowledge of that which is past. He's a God who remembers. But the language that's used there is again, I believe, God, if you like, coming down to our level and taking human concepts to explain to some degree his own being. He is a God who has perfect knowledge of the past. Now, I've turned your attention here to Isaiah 41 because, again, it deals with this issue in, a, in an interesting fashion. Uh, the portion is looking at the contrast between, well, who's the true God and who's the idol? And there are various ways, chapter 40 and 41, uh, that illustrates some of those contrasting features between false gods that, as it says there in verse number 24, false gods who are nothing and the true God who is everything. And the false gods who are nothing, again, it's clear in the verse number 22, it says, let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. And here's the other thing. Let them show the former things. Of course, the point is they can't do that. You know, there's a limitation. You know, the very best historian is only going upon the records that are kept. And those records are never, ever infallible. So there are issues there in terms of our members of the past. And the false gods are nothing. They They don't recall the past. But God does with perfect perception and correctness. And so you turn across to, you might put a marker in Isaiah 41, you'll see uh, another situation there that we'll come back to. But turn across to Luke chapter 1. I'm just giving you one example of this. Luke chapter 1. Because when we think of God remembering the former things, we have the language here, again, surrounding the, the birth of of John and the, the praise of Zacharias in verse seventy or verse sixty seven, his father Zacharias is filled and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to your fathers, and here's the language, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to your father Abraham. And they continue to describe the promise of that covenant uh, that God has indeed remembered. God is not forgetful. He is a God of perfect remembrance. What an encouragement that is. That there is no potential of God not fulfilling his promises due to some degree of forgetfulness. If you're a parent, you will know that perhaps you said 10 years ago to your children, uh, whenever you're this age, we'll do that. They remember, you forget all about it, but they remember. But God will never, ever forget his promises. Never. Always keep his word. Of course, that begs the question. In what sense does God then declare unto us that their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So, I'm going to throw it to you. In what sense is that the case? Paul, yeah. Okay, so the, 
Okay, so we won't remember our sins in terms of the penalty, that the fact those sins are covered, yet part of it, yeah. Okay, see, so yeah, it's a promise in the New Covenant. Yeah, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 10, their sins and iniquities. Well, I remember no more. I'm just saying, well, so, so what we're looking at here, here we've, we're describing a God who has perfect, unchanging knowledge. This is John. Yeah, so it's a promise of mercy. Yep, that. Okay, so yeah, that, that aspect of our eternal purpose. And, yeah, Ken? Yeah, and you hear people using language like our sins are cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. You heard that language? You know, some of that sort of concept that's used regarding our sins. And all I'm saying is just be very careful. Be very careful to understand this properly. God cannot deny himself. So God cannot act with regards to our sins in a way that makes him not be God. And so we do not, our, our sins are not forgotten by God. It is not the sense that God cannot recall them to memory. That's not the idea. It's not that they're now, there's a vast void in God's mind, that there once was a knowledge of our sins, and now that knowledge is, is erased and wiped out. Much of this, again, is anthropomorphic language. But we've, also, we've got to be very, very precise in how we understand this. It is a language of promise, and it is, it's an essence, I think Ken's in the right line, it is, it's in the essence that God will not bring those sins against us going forward. He will not recall them, if you like, in a judicial sense. And so you think of the language of, of Romans chapter 8, who shall lay anything to the heart charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. 
And so the, the point here is, how are our sins not rememberable? Because somebody said they're, they're covered. They are covered by Christ's righteousness. But even in that sense, part of the glory to the gospel is that God, God is able to hold our sins and Christ's work in his perfect mind. And the glory of grace is that all of this results in our justification, which is full and free. Okay, so just be very careful in your language that you don't, you don't describe or think of your sins in such a way that you essentially end up denying who God is. All right, so it's the language that God has given us. It means something, but it essentially has this idea that God will never, ever dredge up the dirt of your sin against you going forward. And so you, you get a situation perhaps in a, in a home place that might be in a marriage, um, what happens is the one spouse, I'm not going to say male or female, one spouse sins against the other. Um, there's a conflict and uh, the offended spouse says, well, I, I forgive you. But secretly what they do is they get a shovel and they bury that sin under the ground, waiting for the right moment when at the right time they'll get the shovel out, they'll dig it up and say, oh, look, here is again. And they'll use it in that way. God will never do that. God will never, ever bring our sins back against us in that judicial sense. And that's a sense which God doesn't remember them. Okay, we find it very hard to forget offenses against us. We, we, we hold on to them because we want to use them again in the future, but God not. Okay, so uh, when we think of things that are past, those are the two things to consider. Yes, there's the aspect of God never forgetting his promises, remembering all things perfectly, but then you've got to properly understand what it means uh, for God not to remember our sins anymore. Uh, yep, Paul then says, Yeah. yeah, that's a good line of thought. So Paul's making the point about so double imputation is taught, of course, in 2 Corinthians 5. Christ made sin for us, uh, and it's God's active choice to remember his son as opposed to remembering our sins. That's a, it's a good way of thinking about it, Paul, is that because oh, our sins are, are met upon Christ. So, yeah, amen. You know, so it's the, it's the constant awareness in heaven that the Father says every, every moment, every second, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the son's work is the, is the focus. Dizzy? Is the Repeating myself, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's not written down, um, but I can give an idea of what I said. So God cannot act in such a way that denies who he is. So sometimes we, we, we say God can do anything. Well, actually, God can't do anything. God can only do those things that are consistent with who he is. And he, he can't act in such a way that would deny his, his being. And so to suggest that God is, is able in this sense to, to, to make a void in his perfect knowledge of our sins the minute we trust in Christ is not the right way to understand this. That's the, the point I'm making because God's knowledge is unchanging. It's perfect, constant knowledge. It's innate. He's never taught anything. He's no counselor. His knowledge is perfect, unchanging, never diminishes. And so the sense of not remembering our sins is not to be understood in a way that denies who God is, but actually exalts who God is. Because in the purposes of the gospel, his, his grace is able to, if you like, hold our sin and Christ's perfect work in such a way that he will never bring our sins against us going forward. It's the hope of judgment day. Because that wasn't repetition. Yes, that's another total sentence. But go ahead. Can you give like a specific example, like to say, so you can't, you can't apply it here, but 
I'm just trying to safeguard language. So I'm trying to safeguard. So if if we're describing this to to unbelievers and trying to explain it, my my point is very simple. We, We try to explain things so simply to children and unbelievers, but in so doing, we may well be teaching falsehood. And it is, it is our absolute responsibility, whatever we're saying, to whatever age, that we're always accurate. And we are, we are not permitted at any point to be loose and careless with our language. The language should be biblical, but it's also got to be theologically precise. And so this idea of kind of God's forgetfulness, I, I get the point they're trying to make in that sense, but it's just, it's just cautious. It has to be, it has to be properly understood. So let me take down, then you'll come back, yeah. Good. Yeah, so it's explaining, I think you're getting the point there, you're explaining difficult things, but still just explain those even though we think the unbeliever may not understand them or even fight against them. But I'm not just totally what Stacey's getting at. Are you really thinking particularly about the issue of, of God's remembrance? Well, or in, specifically for a Christian, like how would his forgetfulness of our sins contradict his nature in another way? Okay, so if, if, if we think that God... So, so let, let's, take, let's take people, you know, with increasing years. Okay, so they meet someone and they don't recall a prior meeting. So in their mind, there is no recollection. They've never met before. There's an absence, absence of recollection. Some people have this idea that in God's, our sins are forgiven in that there's zero recollection. And so what God did know, he no longer now knows. That is a diminishing of God's knowledge and a denial of God's character. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so we, we, we forget things all the time. And what we mean by forgetfulness is zero knowledge. Okay, we just no, no recollection, you know. But for God, that's not possible. God knows all things from before time, for all time. But his promises are anthropomorphic. He's taking human language to explain the gospel and those promises essentially are that those sins will never be raised up in judgment against us again. That's, I think, the best way to understand that language. Yeah.
Yeah, to some degree, yeah. Not especially, but yeah, it's, it's also true. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah, no, it's, it's helpful. No, this is, this is, listen, folks, this, this class is meant to be interactive, okay? I know it's difficult for those who are watching on later on. Uh, I'm trying to listen in. They can't get all your audio. I, I, I apologize for that. But uh, if you're nearby the church, come to the class, you know, and if you can do that at all, do that. It's much better in the class than it is listening on in the future. Uh, but leaving that aside, uh, it is a difficulty. But I, I want this class to be interactive in such a way that if you have something in your mind and you've got a question, it's more than likely at least one other person in the room has a similar question. So it's it's all it's all good, Joe. I'll get Joe then. Yeah. No, so all, all the gospel promises are Christ-centered. They all are yea, amen, in Christ Jesus. So the promise of, of a non-remembrance of our sin is a, is a promise in Christ. And so therefore you've got you to work it out Christologically. And so Paul does that in Romans chapter 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So no one can bring anything successfully against the people of God because God's not going to... Let's put it this way. You're in a court system. And you're standing, you're the... You're the you're the one who's charged in the court. And Satan or another adversary comes to God as a judge and says in the, in the dock, that, that sinner there, they did this against me 10 years ago. God will not say, yes, I remember that. That's the point. God will not confirm the charge against the light because God is justified. And the justification is a final declaration if you like, of the absolute forgiveness of their sins. And so that's the sense that God will not, if you like, join with the adversary and say, well, yes, absolutely. You know, it's part of it. That's, that's Christological because the reason that God uh, will not declare that is, again, because Christ has paid the price in full. There's nothing, gap, there's no gaps in it, and Christ's righteousness covers sins of omission as well as those sins of commission. They're all covered. And so it's all, it all comes back to the gospel. You know, Christ died, rose again, makes intercession for us all that's in Romans chapter chapter 8 so yeah it's definitely Christological yeah so, so what you just said because that's kind of that's what I was asking <laughs> we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ is that what we're talking about for the judgment seat of Christ like the same thing like because I always often wonder that like are my sins going to come up and then I'm going to be acquitted or they're not going to come up at all yeah, there's, there's, there, there are different. So, there are different kind of thoughts, even theological ideas regarding the judgment of Christ and what happens in terms of remembrance. We, we'll give an account for every deed. But those here in Christ, the account is guilty as charged, and God says, "Innocent in Christ." Okay, so that's the sense in which, if there's, if there's a sense in which accounting of judgment, we will absolutely confess our guilt. But that 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 is fully covered in Christ. But the other aspect, of course, of judgment is, is the evidentiary use of, of our lives and our works to confirm the reality of our, of our, of our testimony. If it's, it's a public declaration that this person's works, so Matthew 25, this idea of visitation of the sick and caring for the poor, all those things are made as public declarations. This person's faith is genuine. It's not spurious. It's not hypocritical. It's genuine. Sheep and goats are separated. So all of that's included in, our, in, in the works of our judgment. Um, but ultimately, as far as our standing before God in heaven, it's, it's all covered in Christ. Forgotten in that sense, but forgotten properly understood.
Yeah. Amen. No, there's no, there's no place for purgatory in this that you can, you know, purge away your your sin. It's all it has to be so christologically focused, you know. And I'm, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm trying to get the hymn in my head. And the last line is Jehovah knoweth none. I know my sins and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. Ah, I'll find it. But that's that's a wonderful kind of hymn, hymnic expression of this of this truth. Daniel's remembering it. <laughs> Yes, it is. I think it says be the victor's name. Yeah, so we can, find, we can look it up later on, but that's, uh, yeah, amen. Okay, are we good to move forward a little bit? And my, my desire in this, and even just highlighting this, is again, I, I, will, I want to prevent a concern in your mind. You go home and you think, well, God doesn't remember, and then you read Jeremiah 31 or Hebrews 8, and you say, well, how's these two things true? So that's part of it. But it's also that when you remember your sins, you know what to do with it. You know how to take the Bible and apply the scriptures to your own remembrance of your sins. Because I, I know from my own experience, there are things that I cannot forget. I, do, I just can't forget them. You know, back sinful mistakes made a long time ago, and yet they are very much, uh, if I want to recall them, I can do so very readily. You know, so God has chosen not to do that recollection act. All right, let's move forward. Things that are, and with this will probably... Um, I will see. So, of course, God's perfect knowledge of all things that are is grounded, of course, upon, yes, his knowledge is unchanging, uh, but also in connection with the fact that he's everywhere present. So there's nothing that is hid from God who is everywhere present at all times. That's obvious. God knows all things that are. But uh, I want to show you four examples in Scripture uh, how this our language is used. Uh, so let's, let's look at this quickly. So Psalm 139 is kind of the obvious one, Psalm 139, regarding David's sort of worshipful explanation of the knowledge of God that God has. O Lord, thou search me and known me. Uh, that's kind of the past tense aspect. God knows his past. And then verse number two, thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. And so physical actions. And then thou understandeth my thought afar off. So God's knowledge is not just of actions, but it's also of thoughts. And though God seems to be distant, and what he's dealing with there is again the perception of man is that God is far off. But of course his very point is that God is not far off, God is near. Verse 3, thou art acquainted with all my ways. So God knows our actions and our thoughts. And then verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The Psalm 139. And then turn across to Matthew chapter 10. I'm just going to use four examples. <coughs> Matthew chapter 10. Again, this is used and it's a really fascinating way of how it's used. Matthew 10, it's the words to the apostles that are sent out, and it's going to be difficult, there's going to be trouble in their lives. And verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. And the, the sense is there that, the, that this, even the, the most mundane event of a sparrow falling to the ground, cannot happen without the knowledge of God's. 
and then it's applied but you are more valuable than many sparrows the hairs of your head are numbered therefore don't fear those who kill the body but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell verse 28 and the knowledge that God has for us is a comfort in all of our afflictions tremendous a blessing and assurance in our souls and then John 21 John 21, this for me is one of the most wonderful ways in which the Bible uses the omniscience of God. It's the language of Peter. John 21, and the verse number 17, of course, the restoration of Simon Peter uh, into the apostolic ministry following his sin. And Peter is grieved, verse 17, and he says again at the end of verse 17, and he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things thou knowest that I love thee and what a holy argument Peter makes there regarding his own integrity based self-consciously upon the knowledge of God thou knowest all things thou knowest that I love thee and then one last passage that's Hebrews chapter 4 so these are the four Psalm 139 Matthew 10 John 21 and now Hebrews Chapter 4, Hebrews 4, and the verse number 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Again, the challenge here is against unbelief. Again, you go back, verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall. After the same example of unbelief, the word of God's quick, powerful, sharper. It can divide the very core of our being. And then verse 13, neither is there any creature. So as the word can scrutinize the very depth of our souls, so Paul then continues by saying, well, in fact, God knows the very depth of your soul before the word gets there. So in your consciousness, the word of God can pick out that sin of unbelief. That little seed of unbelief in your soul. The word of God can pick it out, identify it, and you deal with it. But before the word does that, the Lord's already there. He knows it already. He knows the very depth of your soul. Michael. Yeah, and I think that's 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 true um, in terms of. A, but I'm trying to think how to. So yes, remembrance is a human attribute, and so we're saying that that the fact that God remembers is being used in the scriptures in that fashion. It's it's God taking a human attribute and applying it to Himself so that we can understand something of this. And so here you've got a situation where these are believers. Okay, they are genuine believers but they're being warned about unbelief and they're being told that God knows their hearts, including that unbelief. So here's another level in terms of God's knowledge of our, of our sin. That sin is covered, but it's dangerous. It's forgiven in Christ, but it's dangerous. And God's knowledge of that sin is then going to be used in his kindness as the word of God comes and shows us that sin. You see, so what we're seeing is, we're, we've seen this several times in the last number of months, God is, God is way beyond our comprehension. And God is not like us, including his knowledge. 
And so when you're reading words of Scripture, be very careful not to, to take more out of those words than what the Word itself teaches. Okay, so we've got the assurance and the gospel promises of our sins not being held against us. But here the, the, the sense is that God, God can discern our hearts and knows our hearts. Even though for justification is once and for all. George. Hmm. And I think that sentiment can be applied. I'm not going to expand on that, but to what God is saying, kind of, that He will forget, you know, basically not the inability to recollect, but He's not looking at it, obviously. That's the understanding that He looks at Christ and He would be satisfied uh, with Christ's offering, right? So. Amen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's the. These are gospel promises, and everything we see in the scriptures regarding God has a, has a gospel focus, because the gospel is a revelation of God's being. And we'll see it tonight when we come to, to John 13. God is glorified in the work of the Son, because, again, the work of the Son expounds publicly all of God's attributes. And so we see the glory of God in the, in the, in the work of the Son. And so it's all, it's all seen together in the Word. And so we, we're trying to hold all this together. Now, our, our time is gone, and next Lord's Day we're meeting around the table. So we've got to hold this for two weeks, and uh, that's fine. But there's such tremendous application from this. Well, we'll get there. We just need to pause, and uh, I trust it's been beneficial today, and we thought through some things. I'll stop there, um, but please bear with me. And two weeks' time, we'll come back, and we'll really try to apply all this in a, in a consistent way, see all the various lines of thought in terms of how it impacts our, our hearts uh, going forward. Amen. We'll stop there. We'll pray. Thank you for your engagement again today. And may God bless his word to our soul. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Just to think, to consider how you reveal yourself in the word. And we pray you'd help us, O Lord, to have the highest and the right thoughts of thee, our God. We would not, O Lord, be careless in our theology. And yet, O God, we would not seek to be so precise that we... Uh, again, lose the gospel promises. We're always running around in circles in our own minds. Help us simply to take you as you reveal yourself in the word. You've shown us, O oh Lord, as a God of infinite mercy, loving kindness toward us. Thank you for the truth of sins forgiven and peace with God. Help us, dear Father, to rejoice in that today. May it be a blessing to our souls. Even as we consider the mercies of God in Romans, may we delight, O oh God, in these truths for the glory and honor of Christ's name. So bless us now, watch over us in all we would do, in Christ's name. Amen.